0: Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 with me this morning. Paul's about to give us a profound glimpse into one of the great spiritual realities for Christians. And as he's been doing all throughout this book, Paul's going to help us to see some of the things that are not seen. Under the Holy Spirit's guidance, Paul's going to give us some deeper insight and understanding into the way God works, particularly in the area of comfort, comfort. If I were to ask you, what does true biblical, godly comfort look like? I suspect that most of us would have to stop and chew on that for a minute before giving an answer. We probably all agree that that comfort is the relieving of sorrow and pain. It's the encouraging of the heavy heart. It's the coming alongside someone who's hurting and helping to ease their pain, etc. But is that all that comfort is? On the personal level, if I were to ask you, how good are you at comforting others? What would you say? If someone asked me that, what would I say? Show me a church that has begun to master the art of godly comfort. And I'll show you a church where people will want to be. Because who doesn't need comfort? The waves of trial certainly come and go in varying degrees. But we know that at any given time in our church family, there is a desperate need for genuine comfort to be ministered to many people. Both within this church family and beyond. And Paul introduces this entire letter of 2 Corinthians With these verses in chapter 1, verses 3-7, to he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. In the introduction of this book, one almost gets the impression that Paul is going to talk about comfort. It is of no small consequence that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, called the Holy Spirit the Comforter. One only needs to look back to the Psalm 23, such a familiar passage, to see these words. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 2 Corinthians 7. Let's see what Paul has to say about this crucial matter of comfort. Beginning in verse 2 through the end of the chapter, he says, Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if anything I have boasted him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more towards you. As he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling, I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. These are the comforting words of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a remarkable account we have here. Knowing, Lord, that this is not fiction written by someone to inspire and entertain the readers of the future. Lord, this is real life circumstance. Paul walked through this. Titus walked through this. The Corinthians were there. This is what happened. And Lord, these things have happened for our instruction. So we pray this morning that you would instruct not just our minds, but our hearts. Teach us, Lord, to know and to follow Christ. Teach us wonderful truths about comfort, godly biblical comfort, that we might be comforted and so that we might share the comfort of God effectively with others. We expect great things of your word this morning, Heavenly Father. Thank you for what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're thinking there's no way Chris can preach that much material in one Sunday, you're exactly right. I'm going to split this chapter into two weeks. And interestingly, today we're going to cover the first several verses and the last few verses. And next week we're going to look at the middle portion. In music, we call that an ABA format ternary form. You'll see this as we work through the text. But for now, let's begin in verse two and walk through these words. Paul said, make room for us in your hearts. Now, if you were with us last week, you you know Paul is echoing what he said in chapter six, verse 11. Our heart is open wide to you, open wide to us also. And here he repeats himself just a few verses later. Make room for us in your hearts. we know that Paul is talking about the reciprocation of of Christian love. The truest, deepest friendship is always a two-way street. Think about this, one can be friendly, but it takes two to have friendship. Even God's love for us demands our love in return. And Paul says, and rightly so, I have loved you, show me this same love in return. So look at verse 2. It continues. Here, Paul continues with a list of three offenses that he did not commit. He says, We wronged no one, we corrupted no one, and we took advantage of no one. The simple truth is if you love someone, you don't do these things to them. If you've been with us throughout this study, then you know that a major portion of this letter was written by Paul to the church of Corinth to defend his prior ministry there, to defend the truth of the gospel. His authority had been undermined as soon as he left. His motives were attacked. He was more or less accused of robbing the church and using his position as an apostle for personal gain and for fame, etc., If we understand that background, then we recognize that verse 2 is a three-point summary of Paul's defense of his ministry and of the gospel itself. It's a summary of the prior several chapters that he has just explained. It is with great purpose that Paul puts these three phrases back to back. First, he says, we wronged no one. No injustice. He transgressed no individual or the church collective. This is his one phrase claim to innocence in all matters he has been charged. But he makes his point even more specifically with the next phrase, we corrupted no one. Now, why would he say that? Well, of course, this is an answer to an accusation. He was accused of corrupting the Corinthian church, these young believers, corrupting them with false doctrines, With impure motives he was ridiculously accused of ruining them of weakening them and spoiling and corrupting them morally and spiritually emotionally psychologically all of the above this corruption points to the inner man and paul said i have not done that his next point addresses the outer man in a sense he defines his innocence even a step further by saying We took advantage of no one. It's one thing to hurt someone. It's another to hurt them for personal gain. It's one thing to lie about or falsely accuse someone. It's even worse to lie in such a way that it makes you look better. Paul points out that he hurt no one, and he has not selfishly gained from anyone. No embezzlement. No no impure motives. No sordid gain. This is a good time to pause for a quick application. Oh, that every one of us, by the mercy and grace of God, would be able to say, I wronged no one, I corrupted no one, and I took advantage of no one in my church family. How's that for a standard for individual measurement? Paul, by the grace of God, was able to demonstrate and prove his very upright living before the church. He answered all of the accusations. If our church is going to thrive for the sake of each other and for the sake of the gospel going forth, it is vital that we daily humble ourselves before God and one another and behave lovingly and righteously toward each other. Here's the reality though. If you and I are human, and if we stick around here for more than one Sunday, the time is going to come when our character and our actions will be tested. False accusations, even if sincerely made, will come our way. Misunderstandings happen. Feelings do get hurt. We do make mistakes. And there are times when we are going to have to give an answer for our words and actions and even for our motives. We're going to have to prove not just our innocence, but our love for one another. The truth is we all make mistakes. Dare I say it, we all sin. Amen. Amen. It's no wonder Paul urged the believers in verse 1 of this chapter to what? Cleanse yourselves. He would only say that because believers are dirty. They need a washing. He's talking to the church. And he says, Cleanse, the, he tells the church to cleanse themselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Of course, not a one of us is perfect in behavior. That's why we need regular cleansing and repentance and humility. No one, no one is immune to selfishness. That's why we need to be perfecting holiness, maturing and growing our holiness. It's why we need to stop measuring our spirituality by others who is spiritual and who isn't spiritual, etc. And we need to stand in the fear of God, the verse says. In the fear of God alone. We can only even begin to respond in the fear of the Lord if we're in the Word, looking Him in the eyes. There is nothing like the immeasurable value of a clear conscience. God works mightily through those who by His grace and mercy maintain a clear conscience before God and man. When repentance and restoration are needed, let them happen sincerely so that we can regain clear conscience and grow in this perfecting of holiness that Paul and ultimately the Holy Spirit require of every single Christian. Interestingly, that is part of the ministry of comfort. Paul goes on in verse 3 to say, I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul at times, as we know, wrote very hard words to the church of Corinth. Perhaps harder than he spoke to any other church. Strong rebukes. Heavy words of discipline and correction. As we're going to see referenced next week in the middle portion of this chapter. But in the end, his motive for writing was love. And he described his love this way. I have said before. Paul is repeating himself. This is a message he has strived to communicate over and over to the believers in Corinth. I have said before that you are in our hearts. Speaking of the depth of this sentiment, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. That's Paul saying, I'm here for the long haul. I am committed to you. I am devoted to you no matter what the cost. Death itself is not too high a price for my commitment to all of you. When Paul said, we took no advantage of anyone, he was surely alluding in part to what he said back in chapter uh, 2. We are not like many peddling the word of God. You know, the peddlers were traveling salesmen. They talked you into buying fake goods. And then what? They left town before you would find out. Paul says, we didn't preach to you and run. Quite the contrary. He told them they were in his heart to die together and to live together. We are in this together together start to finish. How would you and I like to be part of that kind of a church family? That's the kind of brother and sister in Christ you want looking out for you. Serving by your side. Lovingly speaking hard truths to you. Knowing when you're in need of comfort. Knowing when you're rejoicing, etc. In an age when it is so easy and so commonplace to change churches at a whim. And I'm not talking about carefully, prayerfully, humbly made decision to switch to a different local church. We're talking about changes that happen at a whim over the smallest of things and with a consumerist mentality, etc. In an age when it is so easy to hop around, we see here Paul setting a standard, setting an example of faithfulness, of commitment and sacrifice and long-suffering it's possible paul suffered emotionally physically spiritually mentally at the hands of the church of corinth more than any other group of believers long-suffering you know how easy it would have been for paul to walk away from the church of corinth it's not like today people just follow you on facebook They track you on social media. The grapevine communicates communicates across continents with the push of a button for free, but not for Paul. Paul, he could have walked away and likely never, ever seen or heard from these people again, and they would have had no way to reach him, him to reach them, but he didn't. Likewise, you want a pastor who's with you for the long haul. Do we take for granted and sometimes grow numb to the reality that Mark's been the senior pastor here for 39 years? To the glory of God, amen. If you think that's a milestone, there's one bigger than that, and that's being the pastor's wife for 39 years. And that didn't come across right. I'm talking about being a pastor's wife in the same church for 39 years. Faithfulness. My prayer is that every one of us will follow these examples and recognize this standard of long-term commitment, and that we will make that one of the great virtues of our faith and our Christian living in our church family and beyond, but particularly in our local church family, wherever God would have us, and as long as He would have us here. Faithfulness to God will overflow into faithfulness towards the body of Christ. And Paul had it, and he called the believers to it. Look at verse 4. He says, now, great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Paul just changed the tone of his voice. He changed course in the discussion here quite suddenly. He has gone from defense to confidence. Defense of himself to renewed confidence in them, the Corinthian believers. And throughout this book, we find Paul, as we're seeing right here, to be an example of trusting leadership. He's willing to trust others. He trusts that God, we saw this early in the book, he trusts not so much in people as it is the grace of God in people. There's an incredible difference there. He trusts that God is able to do great things in and through others. Of course, we all want God to do great things through us. But do we see that potential and pray for that potential and work toward that potential in others? Paul's confidence in boasting and comfort and joy in the Corinthian believers was not just wishful thinking, this was well founded sentiment. More on that in verse 5, but we also note here in this verse that these blessings came in spite of all his affliction. Good times had not come to Paul. He was in the thick of suffering. Verse 5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. Macedonia. Picture the Mediterranean Sea. You have the Aegean Sea up at the top. He's working his way around the top from Ephesus toward Troas, toward Corinth, the Isthmus of Corinth that we looked at last year in our study of 1 Corinthians. Paul is working away and he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. Some of you can relate to that even now. Many of us have been there where our eyes hurt so bad because we aren't finding rest. Our bodies ache. We can't think straight, etc. Because we find no rest. He says, but we were afflicted on every side. There are lots of things that can rob us of our rest. But one of the worst is, is affliction. Persecution. Personal things that happen toward us. Personal offenses. He says, we were afflicted on every side. Picture massive troubles at work, and in the home, and in the neighborhood, and in the family. I mean, just massive on every side, he says. Paul is not one to dwell on his problems, but he does give us glimpses of reality so we can learn from them. Our flesh had no rest, and we were afflicted on every side he says conflicts without fears within here's here's the humanity of Paul chapter 4 verses 8 to 12 Paul said we are afflicted in every way but not crushed perplexed but not despairing persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus Does that describe our walk with Christ? That's a thought, isn't that? So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Paul referring to this physical body. We are dying for life in others spiritual life, eternal life in others. What a vision for ministry. That was Paul's present reality. You're probably aware, he often left cities in his missions journeys, not because the schedule said it was time to go to the next location, but because he was run out of town by the religious people, by the religious elite often. He often fled for his life And so he can well say, conflicts without, fears within. About those fears, let's be clear. We have no reason in any of Paul's writings to conclude that his fears were faithless. Chew on that. His fears were not faithless. He didn't doubt God. But he still had good reason to fear physical pain and suffering. Emotional suffering. This was his reality. This is, the, this, is, this is just an earthly, human, mortal reality, and that is that pain hurts. No matter how spiritual you are, we are naturally and rightly afraid of physical affliction, emotional affliction, etc. What did Paul say twice in chapter 5? We groan. We long for the heavenly body. But look at verse 6. This is getting closer to the heart of our study today. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. The morning sun has just crept over the horizon. Look at the joy coming in this text. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us. This is a stunning acknowledgement by Paul. Stop for a moment and let this sink in. Paul was depressed. The Scripture says it. Downcast, as some of your Bibles read. What did Paul say about himself all the way back in chapter 1 when he introduced this book? He said, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Depressed, despaired, downcast. These aren't usually words we associate with Apostle Paul the Magnificent, the superhero of the apostles. And he just said, when we were depressed and cast down, God comforted us. That potential should already begin to bring comfort to us. But again, I find no reason in any of Paul's writings to believe His woeful emotional state was linked with doubt in his sovereign God. This was likely not a lack of faith. It was simply a physical reality that completely drove Paul to the end of his own strength and emotional stamina. Chapters 1, verse 8 and 9 continue. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. That's Paul saying, we were sure we were going to die. So that, remember when the so thats show up, the radar goes up, we turn the ears toward the text afresh so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. Perhaps you've found yourself saying, God, I believe in you. I know that you work all things together for good. For those who love you and are called according to your purposes. I know you've got this under control, but God, why am I so weak and depressed? Christian friend, did you know that if the challenges of life leave you in despair, cast down and depressed, you are in good company. The Apostle Paul went there smack in the middle of his mission work. He went there as he was penning Scriptures. He was beyond weak. He had lost all human strength and desire, even the desire to carry on. And it was in that place that God taught him one of life's most valuable lessons not to trust in self, but in God who raises the dead. If you remember nothing, and I remember nothing from this entire 35 or so week study in this book, perhaps that is the truth we should remember. God was teaching Paul not to trust in himself, but in God who raises the dead. We looked at that tagline several weeks back. Why did God call himself by that attribute? I don't know for sure. It doesn't say. But we see truths that relate to this. One is, if God can raise the dead, he can do anything. If he can raise the dead, he can handle every trial you and I will ever face. This is the magnificence of God as we're going to see again in chapter 12, it was then and only then in that place that Paul found the supreme power of Christ. Not, hear me on this, not the supplemental power of Christ. He found the supreme power of Christ. He found the real power. And here in chapter 7, we see that it was there at the end of his rope that Paul also found divine comfort one of the powers of Christ in us he found divine comfort God himself comforted Paul that's what we want to tap tap into so how did how did God comfort Paul did he give him a promise to lean on well I'm sure he did but that's not what the text says did God take away some of Paul's trials so that Paul wouldn't have to bear so many burdens all at the same time I don't doubt that God relieved Paul of some of his troubles, but that's not what the text says. What does the text say? How did God comfort Paul when he was depressed from being afflicted on every side? By the coming of Titus. This is actually the bullseye of our study this morning. By the coming of Titus. This is one of those hidden gems in Scripture. Many commentaries and theologians point out the fact that Paul is now changing his writing. He's changing narrative. He's picking up the account of his travels, particularly his search for Titus back in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, which say, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, that means there was a great work about to happen there, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Paul can't find Titus. Jump forward to chapter 7. Paul finds Titus. Titus had just returned from Corinth. And Paul's entire emotional state changed. He is suddenly using words like confidence, boasting, comfort, joy in verse 4. And all of that is triggered by verse 7. We're going to see how this all fits in a but, but, but first let me ask another application question. Do you and I recognize the comfort potential, our presence is for others who are suffering? This is a simple thing. Do we recognize the ministry potential God has uniquely placed within each of us, specifically to comfort, to bless, to uplift, to encourage others in their time of need? Granted, there are many factors tied to the ministry of comfort. We already know that some people showed up in Paul's life and turned it to more like hell on earth. Not everyone was a comfort to Paul, but Titus was. Titus was a game changer for Paul. Application. Who are you and I having that kind of effect upon? Or who did God bring into our lives in the past week or month who had had that kind of effect upon us? These questions are worth asking and pursuing with our lifestyle because we are looking at a prime example of it. This is a game changer for the Apostle Paul. Think about that. If Titus can do it, why not you and me? More on Titus in a minute, but first there's more to the sense. Verse 7 says, And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. Okay, that's actually the bullseye in the bullseye. That's the center of the bullseye right there. Paul was comforted not only by Titus's coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, in the Corinthian believers, through the Corinthian believers. Christian friend, do you you and I recognize the ripple effect that takes place when we pause in our busy lives to listen and love and comfort others? The comfort never stops with just one person. Think about this with me. If you comfort a husband who is downcast, his comforted spirit will most certainly bless his wife and children. If you comfort a sister who is bearing heavy burdens, it blesses her place of employment because she now serves more effectively. If you comfort a pastor, it blesses his whole church. If you comfort a child, it blesses their siblings and their parents. And sometimes the comfort keeps going even further. God truly, most perfectly comforted Paul and it changed the Gentiles. God comforted Peter and it changed the Jews. The comfort is still happening two millennia later. When I sat down on my desk and, and I read this text, I had to reread it a few times. Wait a minute. Okay, Titus comforted Paul, and, and the Corinthians comforted Titus, and, and that comforted Paul too. And we know that Paul ultimately comfort, comforted the Corinthians with his message and his love through the letter that Titus delivered to them. So Titus comforted them too. There is this network of comforting happening. This is an incredible picture into the unseen things. There's a compounding effect, a residual, multi-layered, cross-culture, cross-province, cross-church effect happening for the betterment of everyone who's touched by it. This is God, God's blessing of comfort extending to the second and third generation and beyond. What if we all recognized the extensive power and influence of godly comfort and focused more on comforting others in this way in their time of need. What would our church look like if lots of us were regularly and effectively embracing the ministry of comfort with one another and beyond? What would our homes look like? What what would our workplaces, our schools, our community look like? One can only imagine the ripple effect when the power of God comes down mightily through genuine biblical comfort. Let's get down to some of the nuts and bolts. We see this working for Paul and Titus, but how does it work? How does it work? How did the Corinthians comfort Titus? Paul was hoping we'd ask. He gives a very clear answer. And there are three wonderful lessons for us in the text. You can write these down. Verse 7 continues. Paul was comforted by Titus's comfort from the Corinthians. As he reported to us your longing... Your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. You see the three key words there longing, mourning, and zeal. Very quickly longing. The Corinthian believers longed to be with Paul. Again, this is not complicated. When relationships are broken, isolation happens and distance. Is preferred. Communication breaks down, if not ceases. But when relationships are beautifully restored by God, fellowship becomes very highly valued. Application Let us love God and others so much that we love spending time with them. Is it just me or do you look at the American church and marvel at how little time they spend together? There are many countries, many believers abroad who look at the American church and marvel at this. They're so busy with their private lives, their work, their, you name it. I'm not going to name it. I'll get accused of meddling. So busy with whatever that they are hard-pressed to spend more than a few hours a week in one another's company. Do you and I have brothers and sisters in Christ in this church family and beyond that we long to spend time with? We crave the time together. If so, we will be eager to open our doors with hospitality. We will thrive on being together, whether it's at a coffee shop or a salt group. A Sunday morning service or a walk in the park, you name it. We will just plain old thrive on being together for spiritual reasons. Not that we can make every event every time the church doors are open, but there will just be a foundational gut level longing to be with each other. There will be a longing to be together for mutual spiritual benefit. Surely the Corinthian believers didn't long to be with Paul so they could watch the Olympics together or just shoot the breeze or spend an afternoon relaxing on the lake. Not that anything is wrong with those things, but that's not what they longed for with Paul. They know Paul didn't take breaks. And yet they still longed to be with him as their spiritual brother, their dad in the faith. It was a spiritual interaction that they were desperate for I can't tell you how much it blesses my heart. I know it blesses yours to look within the church family and see that so many among us are doing this. I see you genuinely thriving on being together often. It was just last Sunday, one said to me, I already know we're going to have to take breaks from salt during Christmas season, and I'm already bummed about that. That's the spirit. <laughs> salt or Christmas That's the longing that I sense in Paul's heart here. Now, you may be thinking, I don't have that longing. That doesn't define my week to week, but I'd sure like to have it. Let me say this. You are already on the right track. It's the longing that is the spark that lights the flame, that inner desire not just a sense of guilt or duty, but an inner craving from the heart. When a person doesn't even want it, there is little to no hope. So how do we fan this flame? Well, time together is a great and very simple place to start. Love God deeply, then love others, and it will drive you to want to be together. So much could be said on how we practically explore this topic of being together and what we do and how we make that happen. I'm going to let you dive into that in your salt groups. That's one of your salt group discussion questions. You can see the application questionnaire in your bulletin there. Dive head first into this one. groups. I encourage you. Quickly, the second term in this list is mourning. They mourned for Paul. This is such an interesting, heart-level, gut-honest ingredient in the ministry of comfort. The Corinthians mourned that they had wounded Paul so deeply by their accusations of his ministry and his message, their doubts in him and the gospel, their failing to defend him from the false teachers that had snuck into their church. There's a great lesson here for us. We all fail. We all make mistakes. We all sin at times, but not all mourn. When we offend others, not if, but when, let us remember that mourning is the proper response. Deep, heart-level, gut-level sorrow is a mandatory response. We mourn because we love. It's not complicated. It just takes a lot of humility, a lot of others-mindedness, a lot Of the fear of the Lord a lot of the love of the Lord third item in the list says they were zealous for Paul their mourning didn't just stop there they didn't just acknowledge their sin they weren't just sad and apologetic they turned around and went to bat for him they rose up with great zeal in his defense and their zeal was not just for him it was ultimately for the gospel One cannot read through the writings of Paul and get the impression it's all about him. This is a man waving a banner so large and so out in front you can hardly even see him behind it. We already know that Paul's ministry is not about him. It's about his message. It's about his Savior. And the Corinthians had a change of heart that turned them into a mighty army for that message and that person. They rose with great effort with great action on his behalf and for the Lord. And Paul was not only comforted in, this, comforted in this, he says his comfort turned into even more rejoicing. This is the comfort upon comfort upon comfort. His rejoicing turned into double rejoicing. Jump ahead to verse 13, and what does it say? He says, for this reason, we have been comforted. So what reason? Well, in verses 8 through 12, Paul elaborates in detail on another cause for his comfort. And the detail here is far more extensive than the detail given thus far for the other causes of comfort. The zeal, the longing, the mourning, those are all great things. They are wonderful and they are truly comforting. But verses 8 to 12 show us the grand slam of genuine, godly, life-changing repentance that comforts others. That's a sermon for next Sunday. We've seen the ripple effect of comfort today. When one is touched, many are touched. But wait until you see the ripple effect of repentance. So for the sake of time, let's jump to verse 13 so we can see the big picture in Paul's continuation of this big view of comfort. Verse 13, For this reason we have been comforted, and besides our comfort we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, Because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Paul's already said this. He's saying it again. Just when Paul had been comforted, it got even better. He was comforted to a higher level and was overjoyed because he saw that Titus was refreshed by the Corinthians. Follow me on this. When Titus saw the Corinthians' response to Paul, the writings, the hard letter, the admonitions, etc., Titus, just seeing their response, was refreshed by them. And when Paul saw that Titus was refreshed, it brought even more rejoicing to Paul. I'm telling you, once you start tracking all the comfort and joy going around, and who's causing what, it almost starts to get dizzying. Is the potential for this compounding network of comfort any different here at Discovery? Discovery. Have things changed over the last 2,000 years, or does it still work this way? We know it still works this way. We see it. We have participate in it. When you and I reach out and show the love of God to even just one person, it showers joy on the whole church family. All who see rejoice. All who see find comfort. All who see are refreshed. Verse 14, for if in anything I have boasted to him about you, Paul talking, speaking of Corinth, if I boasted to Titus about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be truth. By the grace of God, for the comfort and joy of the church and for the glory of God, let us give one another good reason to confidently boast in the love of God in this place and alive in each person. This love that is alive and well and reaching out. Look at verse 15. He says, His affection abounds all the more towards you. Speaking of Titus to the Corinthians. And he remembers the obedience of you all. There's another element of comfort. How you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. Titus is comforted, Paul's comforted, the Corinthians are comforted, churches for 2,000 years have been comforted with this lesson. Everybody's comforted. It's contagious. Rejoicing is happening. Confidence, think about this, confidence is growing in the church, in one another and in God's grace at work in one another instead of doubt and speculation and offense. In no uncertain terms, we are looking at a healthy church in this passage, What a commendation for the church of Corinth, known often throughout millennia now as the immature church. This is a testimony of the grace of God, the power of God, the life-changing work of God in individuals and in church bodies. In this text, we are looking at healthy relationships particularly among God's people. When we obey God's Word out of good, healthy, reverent fear and trembling for Him. Yes, He's our Father, He's our friend, He's our Savior, but He is also holy and just and He will judge the world in great fury for disbelief and disobedience and unrepentant sin. When we obey God, really what it boils down to when we lovingly obey god and in holy fear and reverence comfort and joy happens in the church and it shines the light of god brightly to all those who are near by the grace of god let us be that kind of comforting light in this place and in this community let's pray heavenly father This morning, we worship you as the God of all comfort. You are so worthy of our praise, our love, our submissive obedience. You, the one who made us, the one who sent his own son to die on the cross so that we could be comforted eternally, forgiven of our sins because Jesus took our place in the punishment of sin. Lord, you have forgiven us. You have given us hope by the fact that Jesus came back to life. He conquered death for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the comfort, the assurance, the solid hope you offer to all who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and repent of sin. Lord, if there is even one here who has not been comforted fully, eternally, by the saving love of God. How I pray they would accept that today. That they would read your word and find truth. And Lord, for those of us who have been comforted, Lord, help us to realize our great comfort. Help us to receive and find confidence and boasting and joy in the comfort you give. But Lord, help us not to be hoarders of it. Let us be channels of your comfort. Our neighborhoods are aching in the suffering of sin, the sorrows, the hurts, the pains of life, and we have the answer. God, so impress this reality upon us that it moves us to be ministers of comfort. Let us do it with great innocence, Lord, taking advantage of no one, corrupting no one, offending no one, wronging no one. Lord, help us to move forward in the love of the gospel, trusting you with the lives and the souls of men. You are a God worthy of praise, and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.